Man, that, that was like a whole free sermon that you didn't even ask for today about hymns. Who knew you were going to get that? Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. We're going to look at verse 29 to 49. Two weeks back, we broke into 1 Corinthians 15, and, and there Paul made this declaration the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. And last week we saw the implication of that. Since Jesus Christ rose from the dead, therefore He is King, which means that His resurrection has implications for all of our lives. Today we learn that death and resurrection is not just simply a one-time event, it's actually a life pattern that's laid over the whole of Scripture. And it is meant to pervade the Christian life. And so verse 29 picks up on a declarative statement made back in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans Another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray and ask today for the presence and the help of your Holy Spirit. Would you give your people ears that they might hear what your Spirit says to the church? And I pray, O Lord, that you would move me out of the way and simply 
use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to, to just point to our King Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to be really clear about something. Christian martyrs and the apostles of the, the first century never died because they wanted to say, I promise Jesus was crucified. No Christian martyrs of the first and second century debated that fact. In fact, everybody knew it. They died testifying to the resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul comes to speak to the people of Corinth because if if resurrection is lost, then Christianity is lost. In fact, death and resurrection of Christ go hand in hand. Now, Late in his life, a legend arose that this grown man was once the little baby that Jesus took on his knee when he said, let the little children come to me. We don't know if that legend is true, but it's not the beginning of his life that's important. It's the end of his life that I want to talk about today. Church historians tell us that Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, was an old man when he was condemned to death in 107 AD. And he was condemned because he was preaching the resurrection. And so arrested in Antioch, he was accompanied by guards all the way to Rome. And so along the way, Ignatius wrote seven letters to churches. And the most telling is the one that he wrote to the church at Rome. And the reason he wrote the letter to the church in Rome is because he'd heard that there was a movement within the church to try to steal him when he got there so that he did not suffer. Well, Ignatius would have nothing of it. He was completely prepared to seal his testimony with his own blood. He said, I I I want to go and imitate my God, Jesus Christ. And he says, I don't want you to rescue me. I want you to pray for me. And then in that letter to the church at Rome, he says, so that I may not only be called a Christian, but also behave as such. My love is crucified. When I suffer, I shall be free in Jesus Christ, and with him I shall also rise in freedom. I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of beasts. So that I might be offered as pure bread to Christ. To hear Ignatius' words, you know that he's read 1 Corinthians 15. Because Ignatius not only believes that Jesus Christ died and rose, but he wants death and resurrection to be his story as well. In fact, he wants death and resurrection to be the, the pattern of his life. You know from the wheat reference. But he gets it. And that is that the way to death is always the way to life. Now, where did Ignatius get such a brilliant concept? He got it from Jesus. who said in Mark chapter 8, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will, and the Gospels will save it. He also heard it from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He heard it from Paul in the words that he said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. But if you've ever read the book of 2 Corinthians, that's the whole story. 
I will give my life for the sake of death. I'll die for Christ. Not just in the end. Every day. So that I might rise with Him. The challenge for you and I, as American, safe, comfortable Christians, is that we have never lived in a lot of danger for the sake of Jesus. Somebody would preach a sermon and want you to feel guilty about that. I will not do that. I'll just simply say it's a blessing. And as I prayed earlier, it's a blessing in the course of human history, and yet that blessing of safety can make us easily forget that death and resurrection is a biblical pattern. But it's not just a biblical pattern for the future, as in one day I will die, one day I will be raised with Christ. No. It's a pattern for today. Today I will die for Christ because I know in Christ I will always be raised up to life. And so this is where the biblical pattern confronts our American 21st century expectations. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer anything for anyone. God says... That's the way of life. So here Paul addresses, I think, some really specific questions that the people at the church at Corinth are asking. And and yet from those answers to the question, you can tell that the way of death leads to the way of life. It's a biblical principle. And I think he proves it in three ways. He proves it from Christian experience. He proves it from what you already know. And thirdly, he proves it from the image you wear. Uh, Verse 29 might be one of the oddest verses we've read up to this point. One commentator laid out 13 different interpretations for this. Verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are people baptized on their behalf? At first blush, I think you read that and you think he is talking about some sort of weird, unknown practice of vicarious baptism. Scholars don't really have a clue because they can't find such a thing in church history and they also can't find it testified anywhere else in the Bible. And so it makes you wonder, are these people being baptized on behalf of their deceased loved ones in hopes of getting another baptism that might apply to somebody else? Or are they taking on a baptism vicariously in the name of someone who died in faith in Christ, hoping to, to in some ways grant a grab hold of the faith that they have and receive credit for it. Well, I don't actually think he's talking about vicarious baptism. I think he's saying, remember. Remember what you saw. And there's a scholar who's got a commentary about this big named Anthony Thistleton, and I think he summarized it the best. I'm not going to read the entire commentary. The practice, he says, is most likely to reflect the dying testimony of those who witnessed to Christ with radiant confidence on their deathbeds. Death strips away every pretense. And so if those Christians could face death with joyful anticipation of the resurrection with Christ, it is quite likely that some unbelievers saw that and said, that's what I want. I'll be baptized and I'll follow Christ the way they were baptized and followed Christ. And so in that sense, Paul's saying, do you not still share the confidence that they had at their baptism? Do you not still share it? And if 
you doubt the resurrection, then why were you baptized in the first place? What is baptism? Biblically, what is going on in baptism? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that it is primarily an identification with Christ. He says this, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you grew up Baptist, that's your language. And it resonates. It's also Presbyterian language. This concept goes on. He says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall surely be united in, with, be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Skip down in Romans chapter 6 at verse 10. He summarizes the whole thing with this. For the death Jesus died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And if you will consider why your identification with Jesus matters, you know that He did not die to sin of His own. I want to identify with Jesus because He died for my sin. Likewise, when, this, when the Scripture says, the life He now lives, He lives to God, I want to identify with the resurrection. So much so, says Paul, that His resurrection moves me to live all of life for God. Paul says you do believe in the resurrection. Your own Christian experience, what you saw as others died, moved you to follow them in baptism so that you too might face death with joy. What you saw, but then also how we lived, he says. If there's no such thing as the resurrection, Paul says, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He talks about death metaphorically. Ignatius, who I mentioned earlier, says basically the same thing. I fight with wild beasts, and it pictures an attack on every side. Every hour, every day, on every side. We give ourselves, says the Apostle, to the brink of death. Imagine you're living in the comfort of Corinth. Pretty Intelligent, savvy people there. And because you're safe in Corinth, you get the privilege of getting to think through some of these teachings. You get to philosophically engage with heresies. And from that safe distance, you look at the Apostle Paul. And he says, that doesn't make sense. We are dying for this philosophy. We are dying for this fact that Christ was raised from the dead. It's a metaphorical death. Which means that it is about, as you walk with Christ, it's about coming to an end of yourself and giving your life fully in service to Jesus. Now why does Paul live like this? Look at verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's like two opposing world views. If the dead are not raised, live it up. Consume everything. Because that's all there is. Some of you know that philosophy. Because you lived it. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, then all of life is given over to Him. 
And the apostles lived this way because they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Your worldview determines your practice. Paul says something which is radically unpopular in his day, and it's equally unpopular in yours. It is not possible for a person to profess faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and yet also to live with the eat and drink for tomorrow we die philosophy. Because the two are opposites. I wonder if there are some here today who have stood before a church and claimed, Jesus is my Savior. Or maybe you believe in your mind, in your heart somewhere, that, that Jesus died and he, and he rose. But in your actions, you are deliberately living a totally different philosophy. Let's eat and drink. For tomorrow we die, let's consume everything. Paul would say, very kindly, today is the day to lay it down. Today is the day to run to Christ. Today is the day to repent of your double life. At some level, each and every one of us needs to weigh the places in our hearts where the hypocrisy between philosophy and actions is exposed. It's not just for you, it's a problem for me. And when we find those places, Paul says, lay them down. Expose them to the light. Be cleansed and healed by Jesus. You do believe in the resurrection. Your own Christian Experience testifies to it. What you saw in the apostles testifies to it. How they lived. And now he says, look at your own life, how you live. Verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I say that to your shame. Bad company ruins good morals. It's a proverb that was completely already known in Corinth when he says it. And it's connecting life habits with philosophical doctrine. What you believe results in how you live. Make sure you get yourself, he says, around those who have a true knowledge of God. And then he applies it. He says, will you identify with Christ in your baptism? Or will you Identify with those who have no knowledge of God. Would you throw off the relationships that have formed you as a follower of Christ? I think if I read that or heard this application when I was 20 years old, I would have walked away and said, you heard what the preacher said. Got to get rid of all my non-believing friends. But that is not what Paul is saying. He's actually talking to genuine, sincere Christians who have been influenced by other people within the church who say they are genuine, believing Christians, but deny the resurrection, deny the central, most substantive heart of the gospel. It is my experience that the wolf who wears the sheep's clothing inside the church is far more dangerous to the church than the unbeliever who's outside. If you belong to Christ, he says, wake up. 
Identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection throughout your life. And so the way of death leads to the way of life. It's a biblical principle. He proves it through Christian experience. He also proves it with what you already know. I think he's anticipating the question. He's anticipating the question because people are already asking it. How can the body rise from the dead? Bodies decompose when they go in the dirt. You can't conceive of the resurrection body? You don't comprehend what that's like? Well, here's some examples. First, the seed. Take a look at verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. He's, he's saying ordinary planting and harvesting points to the resurrection of the dead, and yet most of us are so far away from an agrarian society that we, we lose the tiny miracle that a seed gets into the dirt and somehow sprouts a plant. And if that illustration is lost on you, think about the vegetable you ate or the fruit you ate. Think about the fresh cut flowers that you hold and give to someone that you love. Think about hanging your tree on a ha- I mean your hammock on a tree, an oak tree. And it's hard to believe when you look at those things that they all began with something that looked absolutely nothing like tulip or oak tree or broccoli. It didn't look anything like that. And who would guess that if you bury it back in the dirt and and let decomposition start, then that's the place that life will begin. The phrase, verse 36, actually hints to us how this happens. It comes to life, which hints to our next example. The the seed doesn't say, I think I'm going to come to life. The Bible says God makes the seed come to life. It's the Lord, verse 38. But God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. At the foundation of the world, at the creation of all things, God made it precisely as it was to be through seed and harvest, and it continues to this very day. And so the grain of wheat looks totally different from a kernel of corn. And every time the grain of wheat falls into the dirt and begins to sprout, it grows every time wheat, corn buried, rises up as a stalk of corn. And more than that, he says, I know you can't conceive it, but God gives the seed and the plant the physical properties that he intends for them to possess. You can't imagine a resurrection body. That's okay. Because the Lord chooses what every body will look like. More creation imagery. Verse 39. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Why does the doctor tell me I do not need to eat quite so much pork? Eat more fish. It's because the flesh is different. And God designed it that way. The diversity of various kinds of flesh is something that God made. And it testifies to the wonder of the resurrection body. And then he goes on to talk about the glory of sun and moon and stars from stuff you already know in creation. You can be utterly certain of the resurrection of the dead on the last day. And when Jesus returns, there is not going to be a design 
problem. I don't know how I'm going to bring these bodies back together. They've been turned to dust. Because God's the one who's been doing that ever since creation began. You can't conceive of the resurrection body. So he gives you some examples that you already know. The seed, the Lord. Finally, he expands on this glory concept with this contrast. It's verse 42. What will the resurrection body look like? So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Verse 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Now, perishable and imperishable seem like they are just simply opposite concepts. And so it is tempting for us to say, oh yeah, the first body decomposes. It dies away. The resurrection body will never die away. But Paul actually says more than that here. And and he, he does this because the reason that the Greeks would reject resurrection is because bodies decompose. How is it possible that stuff that dies away could ever come to life? He says... Some of you who are 40 know the process. If you're over 40, you definitely know the process. And the biggest problem with the human body is not that one day it is going to die. It is that it is currently in a state of decay right now. In spite of what it seems on the surface, this might not be perfection. Why does your knee ache? How does your back ache? Because your body decays. And on the other side of resurrection, it is not just that you will receive a body that will not decay. It is that your body will grow in strength and vitality. It's in fact not just the opposite. It is an undoing of the whole process. Those of you who weep and grieve over loved ones that you have watched waste away. You were given a profound resurrection promise. You will never see your loved one waste away again. In fact, the whole process is turned around and their body is not only restored, it is strengthened and strengthened and strengthened. Likewise yours. If you're 47 years old, you go, why does my dumb knee still hurt? Well, there's a day, says Paul, that it's never going to hurt again. More than that, the knee and the arm and the mind will grow stronger and stronger and stronger, all to the glory of Christ. That's the contrast that he lays before us. He says also in 43, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. And this life, this body is a, is a kind of vehicle that carries sin and it carries all these unworthy attitudes and actions. Everything I've ever done. And when you die in Christ, when you are raised in Christ, you come forth with a vessel that will not only never carry sin again, it will never carry anything dishonorable in the least. No matter how sanctified you are in this life, you still have remnants of sin. And God says there's going to be a day with a whole different vehicle That will carry glory. The glory of the Holy Spirit shining forth through you. Verse 43, it's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. You know the body is sown in weakness, don't you? It's just the effects of time. 
And so that old football injury impacts you every single day. You're going to feel it today, and you're also going to feel it tomorrow. I'm also going to experience today the effects of my past decisions to sin, whether with my body or with my mind or with my heart, and those effects seem to go on and on all the way to the grave. But it is not going to remain in weakness. It's going to be raised in power. And you can praise God that that new resurrected body will be subject to no more past wickedness. It will be destined for glory and strength, all to the glory of God. Who is the one who gives dust power? Praise God. There's a day when your resurrected body is not going to be influenced by the past. If you're tired and sick of your own repeated patterns of sin, that's the big promise of the resurrection. You will no longer be subject to those same sins that hound you over and over and over again. Can you even dream of that? The way of death leads to the way of life. It's a biblical principle. He proves it from Christian experience, from what you already know. Finally, from the image that you wear. I tried to figure out a way to bring 45 through 49 together. There's a sense in which there's a question that hangs over the passage. What, what kind of image are you willing to wear? What kind of clothes will you put on? And so there's a sense in which the natural and the spiritual are these two clothing options that are hanging in the closet. And, and the natural is the one that comes from Adam. Verse 45, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The first man, Adam, became a living being. And so when God created Adam from the dust of the ground, he was endowed with a soul, and that soul was totally and completely different from animals and plants. In Adam, we bear the image of Adam, the man of dust. But because Adam was created in the image of God, we also bear the image of God. And yet the image of God is tainted or stained with sin. Verse 46 says that that Adam outfit was the one that came first. It came from earth. It came from dust. He goes on to tell us in verse 48 that the trajectory of continuing to wear the Adam image is that I will return to dust. And then from dust... I came, dust I will return. Why? Because the Adam suit carries this stain of rebellion against God. And if you wear that suit of clothes, the Bible says you will surely die. Not just physically, but spiritually. Apart from Christ, you will be separated from God eternally. But Paul says in verse 49, that was the suit of clothes that you were born wearing, but it does not have to remain that way. Examine with me this the second suit of clothes. Hanging in the closet, the second half of verse 45 discloses what God has done through Christ. He says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That which is spiritual must come from another Adam. One who has so much more than a soul. Jesus is the other suit of clothes. So that when you take Him by faith, you adorn a life-giving Spirit of God. Verse 46, that second suit came next. 
The second suit of clothes came from heaven. It has no stain of dust or earth. Verse 48. Whoever adorns the spiritual clothes of Christ becomes like the clothes he wears. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. I've contended with you through 1 Corinthians that Paul believes he is writing to sincere believers. They're young in their faith. They're easily confused. But they belong to Jesus Christ by faith. And so I want to speak to you exactly as he speaks to them. I believe that many of you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. So look at verse 49. This is the good news of the gospel. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so while there's a sense in which the question hangs out there, which image will you wear? There's also a declaration. And that declaration is this. God has changed your clothes in Christ. You now adorn the image of the man from heaven. You adorn the image of Christ himself. Now, how is the image that I wear proof of the resurrection? Well, because if Jesus merely died and never rose from the dead, then I might reason in my mind that the best case scenario is Jesus could pay for my sins and get me back up to neutral standing. But that's really not enough. Because then I have no righteousness to stand before him. So the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. And His resurrection gives to me a righteousness that I could otherwise never earn on my own. I desperately want to identify. Not with the image of dust, but with the image of that which is spiritual. I will. I will lay hold of Christ in His death and resurrection. So here's a little quick evidence before you go. There's a lot of times in your life where you go, I think I see more of the man of dust in me. But I need to encourage you, if you walk with Christ, that that is the only thing that there would ever be, and you would never know it. In fact, it's evidence that you belong to Christ, that there are glimpses of beauty wherein that which is spiritual can be seen in you. And those glimpses are clear evidence not only that Jesus rose, but that you have embraced the resurrection by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The way of death leads to the way of life. In Christ you learn to die to your sin, and you learn to live unto righteousness. Let's pray.